This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, right off the top, I just got to be real with you about something. So I just had one of the most frustrating experiences, maybe of my entire life, certainly of my podcasting career. Um, I spent probably about two hours recording the episode that I'm re-recording right now because the program, when I went to go export the audio file, it crashed and it deleted all the recording files. So the recorded files, the edited file, like everything, right? And my wife's way better with computers than I am. She got on there, couldn't figure it out. Computer doesn't have enough memory to add this program, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I'm recording this for the second time today, okay? I don't have a lot of patience. I certainly don't have patience for things that should work like this really expensive computer and the program they're in, but I'm undeterred. I'm really, really angry. I'm not having a great time of it right now, but you know what? I'm going to show a little bit of resilience and I'm going to record this for a second time. So it's probably not going to be as good as the first time you're getting the sequel without seeing the original, but here we go. So right from the top, I want to do a public service announcement. So guys, here's the deal. If you like this podcast, I would just ask that you please leave us a review, leave us a five-star review and leave us a few sentences, letting us know what about the content it is that you like, but there's a reason behind it. The reason is, is because what these algorithms do for all these different podcast platforms is if people are listening to your podcast a lot, if they're sharing it, but also if they're reviewing it and all those different things, it'll bump it to the top of certain lists, right? If uh, someone is listening to this podcast, which is a hundred times bigger than yours, but they're also listening to yours, it'll basically be found in their search and their search will be found in yours. It'll get this content out to more people. Okay. So the thing about this podcast that I hear a lot about is there's a lot of guys who say, yeah, you know, I didn't know about this podcast, but then my buddy at church showed it to me or, you know, my buddy at the gym showed it to me and, you know, they'll send me an email saying, Hey, I liked it. I even had a guy email me a couple of weeks ago saying that he had listened to episode like 99. It was like, Oh crap. I didn't know there was all this other content. He went back and started at episode one and has worked his way up to get us caught up to where we are now at one Oh five. So those things happen. And that's because certain guys aren't keeping this podcast a secret. So one of the ways that you can help this podcast grow, leave a comment, leave five stars, but also share this content with other people. All right. And before we get into the content for today, I need to make a little bit of a correction. So shout out to Aaron, my boy from Boston. He pointed this out to me. So I made a little bit of a boo-boo on episode 97 of this podcast. That's the Manconomy episode. Um, I made a reference to uh, the right Will Ferrell actor, but the the wrong Will Ferrell character. Anyway, uh, I said that Ron Burgundy didn't know what to do with his hands. Well, if you've watched Talladega Nights, that's the movie where Will Ferrell, as Ricky Bobby, reacted in a way where he's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. So here's the thing about this podcast. I'm using that small correction to make a larger point here. Guys, if I ever say something that's wrong, and I know this is a silly example, but I want to be able to correct the record. So if I say something incorrect in a small way, let me know about it. Don't be a jerk, but just let me know about it. And if I do something big, like maybe I exegete a scripture improperly or something like that, I want to know that as well. 
You can always email me, info at undaunted.life. If I ever get anything wrong and if I need to be corrected on something, I'll show a little humility. I'll, you know, bear down. I'll correct the record and then I'll move on. Okay. So today we are doing volume 11. I can't believe it. Volume 11 of our Q&A series. So guys, if you ever have questions for me, again, the email is info at undaunted.life, or you can send me a message on Instagram, Facebook, something like that. And we'll try to work that content into an episode. And here's the thing, guys. This has the makings, because I've already recorded this one, so I know this to be true. This has the makings of being a longer podcast. We're probably going to go over an hour, but if you stick with me, there's a little present here at the end for you guys. So that's that's just what I'm going to throw out there to you. Be one of those guys that listens all the way to the end, at least on this episode, okay? All right, so let's go ahead and launch in. First question of the day. Why haven't you talked about the current impeachment process going on in the United States? So... Here's the thing about the impeachment process is I'm kind of like not that interested in it because it just seems like a circus because the thing is, is like full disclosure, I am a registered Republican, all those things. I did not vote for Trump. I had two opportunities to, and I chose not to, but I do support him as my president, as the leader of the Republican party right now. But the thing about this whole process is it seems to be making the Democrats look bad. Because as of the recording of this podcast, you know, these hearings started a few days ago. They had the closed door hearings. Now they're having the public hearings. And a lot of their like key witnesses, they they don't even know Donald Trump. They, they've never been in a meeting with him. Like they don't know anything about his countenance. They, they know nothing. And those are like the big people that they're bringing up, that Adam Schiff is bringing up. And the thing about Adam Schiff is why does anybody have any confidence whatsoever in Adam Schiff? This is a guy that for two years walked around and and went on every news show he could to say that they had the goods on Donald Trump. They had the goods on the Russia collusion. They had all of it. And then wouldn't you know what the Mueller report comes out? They had nothing. Not only did they have nothing, they had nothing the whole time, right? They were just assuming something would materialize out of the ether and it never did. Okay. But the thing about this that I, I find really unnerving is that I understand that Donald Trump is is a polarizing figure and the Democrats don't want him in office, but we're about a year away from an election. So why not just leave it up to the American people? Which I I think begs or lends itself to the other reason why I think that, you know, this is kind of a farce is because I think the Democrats are really, really worried. I think they know that Donald Trump has strong support and they also realize that all the candidates they currently have running for the Democratic ticket are lunatics. They're not people that they have a lot of faith that can make it through an election cycle and win. And so they're trying to either either hedge their bets or or this is just one of their strategies. It seems like they're just trying to get Donald Trump kicked out of office. I don't think for a second they think that he did something that even comes close to what would be considered high crimes and misdemeanors, right? And again, there's so many intricacies here, but I just got to be honest with you. Every time I'm listening to something about this, uh, about the impeachment hearings, I kind of tune out. And I guess one of the biggest reasons why I tune out, like I make sure I pay attention to get what I need out of it, the information I need out of it. But one of the biggest reasons why I tune out is because he's not going to be removed from office, y'all. Here's the thing. The Democrats have gone this far in the House. They've got to, they've got to impeach him in the House of Representatives. But again, he has to be convicted in the Senate. And in order for that to happen, Democrats would have to peel off like 20 Republicans to vote for impeachment. And here's the thing is I'm confident that if there was a smoking gun here, if there was something major that had happened that Donald Trump had done, then that would absolutely happen. I think there are fair-minded people on both sides that would would absolutely vote him out, but that's not going to happen. 
I mean, there's going to have to be something that's brought forth that is like infinitely further along than some of the crap that we're hearing in these hearings. So that's kind of the biggest reasons why I didn't want to talk to you guys about it or do a whole podcast episode about it. And the other thing is, is it's still going on. Democrats said they would have it done by Halloween or have it done by Thanksgiving or all that. I think they want to drag this into the new year, to be honest with you. They want as long of a news cycle possible that is negative for Trump because they know people are barely paying attention. So there are people that think Donald Trump's going to be removed from office, right? Before the election next year, just because they're not paying attention and they don't know what impeachment actually means. They don't know that, okay, when you impeach someone in the house, that doesn't mean they have to pack their stuff and be out by five o'clock, right? And so... It's just not that interesting of a topic to me, and it should be because it's the impeachment of a sitting American president, which is not something that happens every day. But there's just too much other bullcrap going on that it just doesn't seem to make sense to continue talking about it until something actually goes down. Okay. All right. Next question. What are the best movies that you have seen recently? Okay. So uh, I'm going to give three of them to you. So two that you're familiar with and one that you you may not be. The first one is Joker. Okay. Not going to be a surprise to most of you guys. But Joker, that's one of the best movies I've seen in a while, in in any genre. And the thing about it is I don't really go to the movies very often, just because there's not usually a movie that is that, you know, inspiring to me that I got to go like sit in a chair somewhere else as opposed to the chair that's in my living room. But the thing about the Joker that I was really excited about is I'm not really into the fluffy superhero movies, right? So the Marvel movies, the, you know, the Avengers movies where the world's definitely going to end until the last second when it doesn't. And here's a two and a half hour long movie that sets up the three hour long movie. That's the sequel and all these different things. I just like, I'm not that interested in it. It's just not something it's the same plot line every time. Just the special effects get a little bit better and the writing gets a little bit worse. I'm more attracted to kind of the darker, dingier type uh, superhero movies. So I, I think of like Punisher or Logan or the Christopher Nolan Batmans or, or those types of things. And so I figured Joker would kind of be in that vein. And it was absolutely incredible. Now, this is this is not a, a movie for the faint of heart. I know a lot of guys that watch a lot of superhero movies and even one of them mentioned he's like, dude, I had, ni- I had nightmares after this one. It is, it is wicked in, in a lot of ways. But the thing that I found interesting about this was Joaquin Phoenix's performance in this movie was something that I, I don't think can be overstated how good it was. And part, in large part, because Joker is one of the iconic roles in all of Hollywood. But in addition to that, He's really coming off the heels of the quintessential Joker, okay? And and I'm I know I'm skipping a Joker or two, but the the Joker from the Dark Knight, right? Heath Ledger. That's that's the best Joker ever, right? And the idea that anyone could even come close to Heath Ledger's Joker was almost laughable. And then Joaquin Phoenix did what he did in this movie. I mean, absolutely haunting, incredible performance. Very very different from Heath Ledger's Joker. But they're, they're like 1A, 1B right now for me. I'd put Heath Ledger just slightly above Joaquin Phoenix. But just an absolutely incredible performance. It's one of those performances and it's one of those movies that just kind of sticks with you for, for a while. It's like, you know, eating a, eating a caramel or something like that just kind of sticks in your teeth for a while. That's what this movie is. But I, I really, really enjoyed it. Highly recommended. The next one is, you know, a crowd pleaser, but John Wick 3. So the, the thing about John Wick 3, or really the John Wick trilogy, I remember when I watched the very first John Wick movie, I got uh, you know, a copy of it from a friend and they, you know, they didn't really tell me anything about it, but then I watched it when I was bored, not expecting a whole lot because Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves is kind of a weirdo and you know, it's just like, I wasn't really expecting a whole lot and I was really impressed. I really thought the first John Wick movie was really fantastic. And then the second John Wick movie came out. And it was even more fantastic. It it was John Wick one with just more stuff. Like, and so I loved it. 
You don't really get a lot of sequels that out, outpace the first one. And then John Wick 3 came out. That's another one I went and saw in theaters. And guys, I have never seen a better action movie in my entire life. And I would challenge you to tell me an action movie that's better than that one. Because I'm thinking about the Bourne movies. I'm thinking about any of the Fast and Furious movies, some of the earlier ones that weren't as ridiculous. I'm thinking about real like action type movies. It's the best one I've ever seen. I mean, Keanu Reeves is fantastic as John Wick, but the thing is, is they're getting more and more creative with their fight scenes and their performances. And I mean, I mean, he killed two dudes with a horse in this movie. I mean, it's just like, it's getting really, really creative. And it's kind of one of those movies where you can turn your brain off a little bit and just let your eyes be entertained because it is visually pleasing. It's still got some depth to the characters in there. But the thing about it is, is you're watching the entire time and you're just enamored with what he's able to do. Cause you know, there's going to be John Wick four and five and six and all those different things, but you're still really entrenched in what's going on with the story. So John Wick three was fantastic. I just rewatched it again the other day. Uh, that's one. If you haven't seen it, make sure you go watch it, but make sure you watch the first two, uh, beforehand as well. But the third one is one that you guys may have never heard of. And it's one called hotel Mumbai. Okay, so this was a movie about the 2008 terrorist attacks that took place at a uh, a hotel in Mumbai, India, and so, gosh, it is a brutal movie. It is an absolutely brutal movie um, in a lot of ways. Very violent. All three of these movies are very violent. But the thing about this movie is it showed two things. Um, the first thing is it really kind of gave you a peek behind the curtain of fundamentalist Islam and what it actually looks like when these men are, are so enamored with the idea of jihad and the fact that they're going to be able, they're going to do that. Right. Um, I don't feel like a lot of movies do that accurately. And this movie showed the brutality of what these people actually believe. And when you actually follow Islam, what it requires of you. But the second part of it is it actually showed the humanity of some of the people that were working at the hotel in India. And the thing about the people that were working at this hotel in Mumbai, India, is that the movie accurately depicted that, that several of these employees, right, of a hotel, they literally gave their lives so that their guests could live or at least have a better chance at living. And that's just, that's just crazy to me. That, that these people were sacrificing themselves for people that had just rented a night or two in their hotel. It's just a different level. I mean, customer service is almost just kind of like two tongue in cheek, but, but it's just, I felt like the movie did a really good job. I'm not just being savage for the sake of being savage. I thought that they were appropriately, um, you know, effective in how they handled the violence of that movie because it was an absolute bloodbath inside that hotel. And so that's one that I don't even know if it went to theaters. I think it may have just gone straight to on demand or something like that. But if you've not uh, seen Hotel Mumbai yet, you definitely should. But yes, Joker, John Wick 3 and Hotel Mumbai, best movies I've seen recently by far. Next question. Actually, this is more of a statement. Every boy should be put in wrestling at a young age. Prove me wrong. Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to disappoint you because I'm not going to prove you wrong because I agree with you. I agree with you 100% that every boy should be put in wrestling at a young age. Every single one of them. Well, if they're able-bodied and, you know, you know, they have the right temperament or whatever the situation is, they've got to be put in that. Okay. Now that doesn't mean they're going to be an Olympian. That doesn't mean they're going to wrestle in high school. But I think the biggest reason why it's important for a young kid to wrestle is because most of the sports that you play as a child are team sports, right? You're playing soccer, you're playing football, you're playing basketball, baseball, those types of things. And I love team sports. Obviously, I grew up doing team sports, didn't do a whole lot of individual sports. But when you're wrestling, you're the only one out there, okay? You can't depend on the taller kid to make more baskets that game. 
You can't depend on the kid coming after you in the bat in the batting order to to come out there and actually get the hit, right? Like you can't depend on those things. It's just you out there. It's you, the other kid, and the referee. And it's ready, set, go, shake hands, and get after it. You know what I mean? And so the level of resilience I think that that can help a kid build at a young age is incredible. Because the toughest people that I know in my entire world, in my entire life, are wrestlers. It's a different kind of tough. And, you know, guys that wrestle their entire lives, you know, their bodies are beat up, necks are beat up. It's just kind of the it's kind of thing. I mean, if you're a football player, your head's beat up, your knees beat up. If you're a baseball player, your elbow and shoulder are messed up. Like, it's just kind of one of those things if you play sports your entire life. But it teaches a level of toughness that I just don't think you get with a lot of other sports. And that's not to say athletes in other sports aren't tough. There are certainly tough people in, in every type of sport. But the level of resilience you have to have in order to just compete in wrestling is such at such a high level. I don't know of any other sport that's as safe as wrestling that would be as good for a child, right? Because, you know, I would say MMA is obviously a tougher sport because it includes wrestling, but then also includes jujitsu and Muay Thai and, you know, Western boxing and other striking and stuff like that. But you don't necessarily want seven-year-olds taking shots to the head. You don't want them getting kicked in the face, that type of thing. But for things that are as easily accessible as wrestling, I mean, you you need a you need headgear, a singlet, and some wrestling shoes, and, and you're you're after it, right? I mean, was that fifty bucks, sixty bucks, something like that? Um, it's it's a great sport. Um, it's something that I would encourage all parents to get their their kids into. Uh, at the very least, it'll it'll allow them to be tough. And I know the guy that sent me this question. I know he's got a couple of boys that wrestle. I think uh, they actually won a tournament here recently. Uh, so shout out to you guys. Uh, don't want to say your names on the air, but man, super proud of you guys. Uh, I saw the picture of your your rings and your medals, but that's awesome. And, and the, the life lessons they're learning right now, they can't even fathom uh, how that's going to benefit them in the future. But yes, definitely put your kids in youth wrestling. Next question. Do you think hitting do you think hitting someone in the head with a helmet should be considered assault? So, okay, if you don't understand why that question is spot on with what's going on this week, then you didn't watch football last Thursday or as of the recording of this podcast. So, this was a game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Cleveland Browns, okay? So, we're at the end of the game. All right? Uh, I think the the Browns are up 21 to 7, right? So, the game's essentially over. So, there's a little scuffle, right? There's a scuffle between Miles Garrett and Mason Rudolph. So Miles Garrett is a defender on the Cleveland Browns and Mason Rudolph is quarterback. And so in this scuffle, Garrett actually rips off Mason Rudolph's helmet, right? Brutal, right? I mean, that, that couldn't have felt good. You got the chin strap in the way he ripped it off. It, I mean, it just, it was kind of brutal, but then Garrett swung the helmet and hit Mason Rudolph in the head with it, Right? He takes the helmet, swings it around like a shot put, and boom, hits Mason Rudolph right on the top of the head. Now, Mason Rudolph and, and Miles Garrett are both incredibly lucky that Garrett hit him with the bottom part of the helmet. So if, if you think, if, you, if you're palming a face mask, it's the bottom part that's got some padding on it and it's, and it's hollow. That's the part that he caught him with. Because if he had hit him with the crown of the helmet, he may have killed him. Like, and there's no hyperbole there. He literally might have killed Ray, Mason Rudolph right? Because he swung it as hard as he could. And so in this exact situation, yes, Miles Garrett should have been arrested that night, right? And some of you are like, oh, it's crazy. It's football. It's whatever, right? You're not going to get arrested for a helmet to helmet hit, even if it was on purpose. You're not going to get arrested for diving at someone's knees or a chop block or any, any type of dirty play. But this was assault with a deadly weapon. I mean, I, I think back at the, the joke from what was it? Uh, Happy Gilmore, where he's like, you know, when he was like, take, took his skate off and tried to stab someone with it. If that actually happened in an NFL game, that shouldn't be a five minute major penalty. You should not only be kicked out of the league, you should leave in handcuffs. 
because you're trying to kill someone at that point. Now, I don't think Garrett's intention was to kill Mason Rudolph, but he very well could have. And he intentionally tried to harm him. So as of right now, Garrett has been suspended indefinitely. So he's definitely done for the rest of the season, but there's probably a good idea or good chance that he'll be back at the beginning of next season. He'll have to do some community service and make some donations to Mason Rudolph's favorite charity and all that kind of bull crap, but he'll be back. It's one of those situations where this, this should be in my mind, it should be at least a year suspension, but that should be the least of his concerns because he should still be in jail right now. Right? Like, like that's exactly what should happen. If that had happened on the street and he'd swung a helmet and hit somebody, he'd, he'd be going to prison. Right? And so, again, I know it's kind of a funny story at the beginning, but it, it could have been one of the worst stories that we've seen in sports. Right? In a long time. I mean, when's the last time someone killed someone else in the middle of an of a American sports game? I, I, I can't even think of a time that that happened. But yes, I do think that that should have been assault. Okay? Next question. How do you create an environment where the men in your foxhole tell the ugly truth as opposed to lie for appearance sake? Okay. So this guy, obviously, I think listened to episode 104 of this podcast, which by the way, the Your Foxhole podcast has gotten a lot of great pub and great reviews. You guys have been telling me what you liked about it. You've been telling me about your foxholes. You've been asking follow-up questions. So I'm glad that that content landed with you. But with this one specifically, it's, you know, how do you create an environment where men in your specific foxhole tell you the ugly truth as opposed to lying for appearance sake? So here's the deal. Most of this isn't on your foxhole. Most of this is on you. Okay. So here's the first part. If someone's doing something wrong in your group and you don't point that out to them, you're not doing this right. Or if they ask you for feedback and, you know, direct feedback and you don't give it to them because you want to save face or you don't really know how to say it, you're not doing it right either. You have to model that for other people, right? That doesn't mean you have to be, you know, biting to the point of being offensive every time you give someone feedback, but you've got to be able to self-correct inside of a foxhole, right? Like, like that's exactly what you need to do. But the other side of it is, is if someone in the foxhole corrects you, you've done something wrong or you've offended somebody or you, you did something uh, that was underneath some of the standards you had set for yourself, you better respond nicely to that. You better say thank you. Don't be like, oh, you're always picking on me. Well, what about the last time when you did blah, 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 Like, no, 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 shut up. Just take it. Sit there, have your heaping serving of humble pie and make the necessary changes in that situation and then move on. So that's the thing is I understand kind of, I think I understand where this guy's coming from with this question, but it's not as much what's happening outside of you as it's what's happening inside, like, or sorry, what's happening outside and what everybody else in the group's doing. It's more about what's happening inside of you. When, what are you willing to tolerate? And what are you willing to do? Are you willing to put some relational equity in the middle? Are you willing to push some of those chips into the middle to, to confront a guy and try to make it to where he ends up being better? I mean, that's the thing. That's how you create the environment where everyone's telling the truth starts with you. Tell the truth. You've created your environment right there. All right, guys, next question. Once you've established your foxhole, okay, another foxhole question. Once you've established your foxhole, when do you start reaching out to other guys? Do you start reaching out to other guys? Okay, so I I guess there's a couple ways to come at this question. So here's the deal. Some foxholes are closed foxholes and some are open or, you know, revolving doors, right? So I'll, I'll use my, uh, my jujitsu guys as an example. Cause that's basically my foxhole or guys that train jujitsu on Sunday nights. So these guys, 
started this group like 13 or 14 years ago, over 10 years ago, right? And the thing about it is, is when they started it, the, the intention was never to be that we would be training right now today. It's just something that kind of happened. But let's say that was the goal from the beginning. The thing is, is real life happens because there's like two or three guys there that, that still come to this group that were there at the very beginning. It's like two or three, maybe four, right? But on any given week, we're going to have somewhere between, you know, one to two dozen people there, right? It's not the same guys every week. But during that 10 plus year period, you've got guys that have gotten injured. You've got guys that have moved away and some of them have moved back. You've had guys that, you know, have a kid that gets sick. You have guys that just turn into a puss and then they just don't come anymore. Like you've got a lot of different guys that come in and out of the group. You kind of have the pillars, those two, three, four people that have been there from the beginning. Like those are the anchor points for the group. But then you have people coming in and out like me. I've only been a part of this group for about three years, right? seems like way longer, but that's basically all that it was. And so the thing about it is in an open group like that, you should be looking for guys, right? And you shouldn't have to ask permission. So the thing is, is we had a guy here recently, one of the guys in our group, Mike, he invited a friend and that friend came that week. And then the next week, the friend that he had invited, invited another friend, right? And so that's just kind of how it goes. That's perfectly fine in a group like that. Okay. But there are foxholes to be fair. There are foxholes that are closed. So maybe this is a group of guys that have been, I don't know, they've been best friends since high school. And then they all went to the same college. And then, you know, they, they've been in the same church. They've had some of the same struggles. They started having kids at the same time, but they've got together every Wednesday morning to, to have, you know, a Bible study or something for the last 15 years, or they get together every Friday night for cigars or whatever the situation might be. I think it would be unfair to the group itself, but also to the person that you might invite in to invite somebody else in. Because if this is the core group and then Bobby over here is being invited by a buddy, there's way too many inside jokes. There's, there's way too much depth of understanding and really like relational intimacy there to, to bring in a new guy. It's not fair to them. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to the group. And so I think at that point, um, if, if that group stagnates, that that's maybe a conversation that y'all have together over, over a cigar. It's like, Hey, you know, it's been the same five guys for forever. What would you guys think about if we, you know, established, you know, a few more people that we think would be great for this group that might help us and, and don't, don't fully expect them to go for that. Right. Cause especially if it's been a closed group for that long and a lot of groups aren't as, you know, standard, you know, you don't have like patches or t-shirts or, you know, you know, standard meetings or something like that, but it's just something that everybody's grown to expect. They expect people to meet around this time, around this type of thing. So that probably wouldn't make the most sense to do that. But most groups would probably be open groups. And in terms of when you should start looking outside of the established foxhole, I would say five minutes ago, right? Like you should be inviting guys. You should be trying to make as many guys better as possible. All right, guys, next question here. What is the one band you wish would disappear from history? Okay. Oh, oh man. There's so many bad bands. There's so, uh, and here's the thing. I've talked about this before. There's a lot of bands that y'all like. There's a lot of bands that a lot of people like that I think are terrible, like awful. So like, I guess the first one that comes to mind is the Beatles. Like I just, I don't get it. Like when people like lose their minds about everything Beatles related, my wife included, I'm like, oh, this stuff is terrible. I don't like it. Bruce Springsteen is another one. That guy, how does anyone like Bruce Springsteen? Like he can't sing. He's not an especially talented musician. Uh, his songs aren't, aren't that great, but people literally lose their minds over the boss. Uh, uh, you too. There's another one. 
How is it possible that that band sells out stadiums? How is that possible? Like, I, 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 oh, it's just, it's infuriating to me that people will literally drop what they're doing to listen to a U2 song. When their new iTunes came out and like it came already ready to go with a new U2 album, I was like, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. Is that the only album I have in this collection right now is a U2 album, right? And then you've got like, you know, your, your douchebag country. So like, you know, Luke Bryan and Florida, Georgia line and all that nonsense. Like, and and whoever wrote the the song, like, uh, she thinks my tractor's sexy or whatever that is, dude, that song didn't just set back country music. It set back like humanity, right? Like, I mean, it set humanity back a few years that that song was ever able to come to the, to the forefront and anyone was ever able to listen to it. So, well, okay. I'm getting off track now, but dude. There's a lot of bad music out there. Like there really is. But if, if there was one band that I could just, you know, delete from history, man. Okay. That's a good one. Um, okay. I would say the Beatles. Okay. So I already made your head heads explode whenever I talk trash about the Beatles anyway. So here, I'm just going to double down on it. So here's the thing. I know a lot of artists out there. They, they list the Beatles as one of their main inspirations. Right. And so as just like an interesting thought experiment, wouldn't it be interesting to see what would have happened to music like rock music or pop or radio music or whatever the situation might be if the Beatles just all of a sudden didn't exist? I mean, something would have filled the void, right? You know, it might've been another similar band to the Beatles. Maybe it would have been the Monkees or the Who or I don't know. It would have been somebody else. But I think that would have been interesting to just delete them and see what happens to music. So anyway, good question. All right, moving on to the next one. All right, this one's a little bit more serious. Here we go. Can a divorced person have sex before they get remarried? Okay. So when I first got this question, I felt like there was a whole lot more depth to the question, even though the question seems rather straightforward and simple. So again, the question is just, can a divorced person have sex before they get remarried? But I feel like there's three main things that have to be reckoned with inside of this. And the first is divorce, obviously. But the second is adultery. And the third is just overall, you know, sexual sin. Okay. And so the thing about divorce that that I find really interesting is divorce is one of those things that seems to just be common within the church. And that is like horrifying. That is so common because this, what, what a marriage relationship, a covenantal Christian marriage relationship is supposed to show the world, the secular world is, Hey, this is the closest thing that we have to Jesus's love for his bride, which is the church is our covenantal relationships with our wives. Right. And so when the divorce rates of people inside the church pretty much match the divorce rates of people outside the church, that is terrible. Like that, that is a brokenness that it is so hard to even fathom. But the other thing about divorce is it's something that's not really talked about. I think most pastors uh, that you're going to go to, not just mega church pastors, but at most churches, it's a subject they don't really discuss very much. They just don't really like to broach it, right? Because they know that 30% of the adults in the audience, maybe 50% of the adults in their audience have had a divorce. They're sitting there with their second or third spouse. You know, it's that type of a situation, but kind of going back to the beginning again there, I think there's three things to discuss here. The first is divorce. And I think we should go to what Jesus says about it. Cause anytime you can get a red letter answer to a hard topic, it's like, okay, let's, let's go with what Jesus said. Right. So I, I want to read from Matthew 19. I'm going to read verses three through nine, and this will be through the ESV version, but it's this here. So the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, 
Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, this is Jesus. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Jesus again, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Those are the words of Jesus, guys. So if you divorce your spouse and not for infidelity, not for sexual immorality, right? And then you go and get married to someone else. That is adultery. It's as simple as it gets, right? Again, this person's asking me a question about sex, but we got to start with the divorce, right? But that does dovetail into the second part, which is talking about adultery. So going back to Jesus in Luke 16, verse 18 here, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Okay. So when you go and get remarried and then go and get remarried again, because obviously the second marriages have a higher divorce rate than first marriages, third have higher than first and second, you know, it's kind of that whole deal. You're extending the adultery. Now, there is a little bit of a debate over the, the language of adultery here, whether it's meaning like, is it new adultery or is it the continuation of adultery? But it's the same category. It is adultery. And here's the thing, guys, is, you know, I've got, you know, divorced guys in my crew. I, I Some of my best friends have gotten divorced. Like, it's just kind of what it is. But the thing is, is, is most people just see it as like, oh, yeah, it really sucked. It was hard to do that. I'm sorry I had to put the kids through that. But I'm just happy now. I'm happier now. It's like, when, when did you get the idea that this was about happiness? You made a covenantal commitment before God to be made one flesh with one woman. What are you talking about? And then you have these, these women, when they get married, they're in their white dresses, which is supposed to signify their purity. And most of these women have been defiled well before they got to the altar. And then even worse, you got the pastors up there. That, that are standing in between two people that are in the act of adultery on the altar. And they're just brain dead, blah, 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 reading from 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's like, are y'all not reading the same book? You, you've got it open. Flip a few pages over. Like, it's straight up adultery. But, but this gets us into the last part, which gets back to the original question, which is we got to talk about sexual sin. But here's the thing, guys, is it's really easy here. It's pretty linear. Sex outside the covenant of marriage is sin. It's, it's immoral, period, full stop. That's it. But if you do need additional prompting, here's Hebrews 13. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And so the thing I find interesting about this question is it seems that some people that are divorced that, you know, maybe they got out of a bad relationship or maybe they just didn't love each other anymore or whatever the situation might be. They, it's like, they feel like, well, I've already been married. And so I've already had sex and I'm, you know, I had a bunch of sex before I got married. So it's probably no big deal for me to do that. Now it's kind of like, it's kind of like a sunk cost. I'm already pot committed at this point. Nope. Nope. It's still sexual sin. It's still sexual immorality. Sex in any way, shape or form outside of the covenant of marriage is sin. 
it just is what it is. So that's the thing is, and I know I'm not talking about the grace side and people are always like, well, you need to have a little bit more grace and you're probably right, but it just is what it is. I feel like a lot of you guys are only operating using grace. That's all you'll ever hear from somebody is whether or not they're speaking to you in a grace-filled manner. But at the end of the day, guys, it is what it is. It is so unbelievably straightforward. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that a divorce, adultery, sexual sin is unforgivable. There's no indication from scripture that those things are unforgivable. However, what we do get from scripture is that sexual sin is a different sin entirely. It's the only sin that is against our own bodies, right? It's a different level of sin. And so we've got to take it seriously. And and that's why we, we talked about relational equity earlier. I've pushed my relational equity in on a lot of guys that were in the process of getting divorced. And I may have been the only guy in the crew, the only guy in their life that was fighting for their marriage, including them. And there were guys that got mad, guys that wanted to push me off, guys that wanted to fight me after all that. But if, if this is Jesus's love, you know, love of the bride of, if this is as close as we can get to that, why would we care if our friends punch us in the nose? Because their marriage is way more important than a nose surgery. Their marriage is way more important than an awkward, you know, an awkward next couple of run-ins. You know what I mean? So I think we've got to get more serious about the subject than, than we are right now, but I guess it just is what it is. It's just reflective of where we are right now in 2019 going into 2020. All right, guys, next question here. I know you're a baseball guy. How did your preseason predictions end up? And what are your thoughts on the sign-stealing scandal currently going on with the Houston Astros? Okay, so uh, I'll bring you guys up to speed on that. But all right, my preseason predictions were pretty good, I got to admit. <clears throat> so I don't always have great predictions. Uh, this year I did pretty good. So uh, I picked some of the awards right. I got Mike Trout right. I got uh, you know uh, Mike Schilt winning the NL Manager of the Year award. Uh, my World Series prediction, uh, my, the preseason prediction of the Nationals facing the Astros, that came true. I had the, the Astros winning in six. They ended up losing in seven. But, I mean, nobody was picking the Nationals to go to the World Series, especially after they lost Bryce Harper last year. But there's just something about that pitching staff that I thought was compelling. I thought they could make it past the Dodgers. Obviously, that's that's exactly what happened. So, had a good one, good run this year. I wouldn't be completely surprised if next year I got, like, two things right. So, that's just kind of how it goes. But the sign-stealing thing with the Astros, this is a gigantic sports story. And I don't think it's getting nearly enough play right now. And every day we get a little bit more detail on it, but let me kind of give you guys a rundown. So you might've heard over the last several postseasons about the Astros quote unquote stealing signs, but it's completely separate than what I'm about to talk about. So what most people were talking about is like, okay, if, if the Astros had a runner on second base, they would look in on the catcher giving his signs, right? And then they would try to give some sort of an indication to the hitter as to what pitch was coming next or at least what location. So maybe it's going to be high or low. It's going to be inside or outside. Maybe they can give you the actual pitch, maybe the pitch and the location, right? So that's not illegal. And that's not cheating because that's on the pitcher and the catcher to make sure that no one else in the stadium knows what pitch is coming except for them, okay? Because you may have heard about pitchers that are like tipping their pitches, So there are certain pitchers that, you know, when they're throwing an off-speed pitch, they'll twitch their glove a certain way, 
right? You know, they're, they're moving the glove around, trying to get the grip just right, and that kind of gives away what they're throwing. Some pitchers throw their pitches at different arm angles, right? So a four-seam fastball, a guy will come a little bit flatter, but with a you know an off-speed pitch, maybe he comes a little bit more over the top, that type of a thing. So those are tells that kind of give the batter you know a microsecond of advantage to kind of figure out whether or not they're going to try to put the ball in play or not, okay? But that's not what we're talking about. <clears throat> what the Houston Astros have been uh, accused of is that since 2017, that they have been using cameras in the outfield zoomed in on the catcher's hands and then that they they were getting the information from the camera it would go to a monitor in the dugout and then somebody would give an indication to the hitter as to what was going to happen it was usually like some sort of a sound of some kind so there was a video of a guy that did this in 2017 so there was an Astros player up to bat um I can't even remember the dude's name but uh his nickname was like a El Oso Blanco like the, the I think it was that the white bear or something like that anyway I can't even remember the dude's name but I can remember his stupid nickname but anyway he's up to play and what they would do is every time this, this uh, relief pitcher, he was a fastball changeup pitcher. That's it. Every time he was about to throw a changeup, basically they would get the sign from the camera. It would go into the, the monitor in the dugout. And then before the pitch was made, you would hear a like like a big uh, noise in the dugout. And then the batter would know, okay, it's a changeup coming. So if the ball was coming towards a plate and it was a changeup and it started out of the zone, the guy would know to lay off because it started out of the zone and it's going to end out of the zone, right? But then otherwise, if it's a pitch that's going to end in the zone, you're going to crush that. You need to crush that changeup. That's a great chance to get an extra base hit, right? And so this video kind of broke this whole thing down. And it's crazy. It's crazy that that's what they were doing. But they weren't doing that for three seasons. They had different indications of how to how to get to the batter, what was going on. But the, the biggest problem is the amount of people that are caught up in this right now. So Carlos Beltran was on the 2017 Houston Astros. Again, that was the, the World Series winning Houston Astros, by the way. He just got hired as the manager of the Mets. So that's affecting his job as the... Uh, the Mets manager, potentially. Um, A.J. Hinch, who is the the manager of the Astros, he's obviously caught up in this. Um, You've got uh, Carlos Correa. They're they're all Mr. Everything, young shortstop superstar. He's been mentioned in this. You've got former players that have come out to basically corroborate, you know, guys that played for the Astros saying, yeah, that's that's exactly what was going on. And it's like, it's kind of weird. It's like, eh, you couldn't have said something like, I don't know, two years ago when you were like making money off of winning the World Series. But, you know, I guess it is what it is. But, the thing about this sports story is this potentially has unprecedented ramifications because I've been thinking about like, okay, let's say they, they find the smoking gun and the Astros are guilty of this. What, what can you do to a professional sports team in one of the four major sports? Because it's not like, you know, SMU where it's like, you know, you give them the death penalty. They can't have scholarships for a few years. And then you basically decimate the entire athletic department. What do you do with a team like this? Is it fines? You know, do you find them out the wazoo? Do you say, okay, you get zero draft picks for the next five years, which would absolutely cripple their farm system? I mean, I, can you make them forfeit their 2017 World Series title? Like, do you have a vacant World Series title? I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that can go on here. There's a whole lot more investigation that needs to be done. But even like right before I started recording this podcast, there was something that came out that said uh, one of their uh, executives, one of the Astros executives, they have an email where he's basically asking about how they can get an advantage, right? And how they can you know steal signs using cameras. And this was back in 2017, which is the year in question. So really, really interesting stuff. Even if you're not a baseball person, this could have oh, like unbelievably wide ranging ramifications. So something to keep an eye on. All right, guys, next question. I know you're a metal guy, and that's music, music. Oh, sorry, that was weird. Okay, let me let me just start over. Let's reread that. Okay, I know you're a metal guy. Got it. What are your thoughts on the return of As I Lay Dying? 
Will you, can you, or do you support that band? Okay. So for those of you who aren't metal people, Azalea Dying is more specifically a metalcore band. Um, this is a band I started listening to in high school. Band has been around for a very, very long time. Um, that it's one of my favorite bands of all time. The lead singer is a guy named Tim Lambesis. So Tim was kind of your, your typical metal guy. Um, he's, he was very integral to the band. Not only was he the front man and the iconic voice for them, he also wrote a lot of the guitar parts. He basically wrote most of the music that we all ended up loving and headbanging and, and moshing to, right? But in like the 2011, 2012, 2013 area, he started getting really into bodybuilding and really into steroids. Like this dude went from like being real thin, you know, just kind of dorky metal guy to, to being like jacked, like super yoked up jacked. And so that, that is actually relevant to the story. But in 2013, he was actually arrested for trying to hire a hitman to kill his wife. Okay. So this is a guy who's, you know, he said he was a professing Christian for a long time, but then later came out as an atheist and said, you know, I was just pretending to be a Christian so that I could, you know, sell records and, you know, do concerts at Christian venues and stuff like that, which as like dying, certainly not the only band to pull that off. A lot of the solid state and tooth and nail guys did that, but that's neither here nor there. But the thing was, is he, I was apparently talking to a guy at a gym and, and he was trying to talk to somebody else who was going to introduce him to, you know, a hitman, a mechanic, someone that was going to take care of his wife. And I think he was going to pay this person like, it was like, I don't know, like 2,500 bucks or five grand. It was something, some kind of like ridiculous amount of money. But luckily for the woman and, and terribly for, for Tim Lambesis, the person he was introduced to that was the quote unquote hitman was a cop. Yeah. And so he's arrested. He's dead to rights. I mean, they've got his hand in the cookie jar. It's, it's all kinds of bad. So he's arrested in 2013. He went on trial. He was convicted in 2014 and sentenced to a six year prison term. Uh, he was actually paroled two years later in 2016. Um, you know, he wrote some letters while he was in prison about how, you know, contrite he was and how he was apologizing and doing all these different things. You know, his band members completely turned on him. They said he was a horrible guy, even leading up to the arrest. And then the arrest just ruined everything. I mean, for these guys, Azalea Dying was everything, and Tim Lambesis is Azalea Dying. So these guys tried to create another band with the lead, one of the lead singers of O Sleeper called Woven War, did a couple of albums, never really got any traction. But the thing about it is, is Azalea Dying is now back together. All the guys have reconciled, you know, they figured out all of their issues. You know, he's, Tim Lambesis has been free for over three years now. But the problem is, is, is can we support this band? And so the, the interesting thing about it is I've actually struggled a lot with this because you know, if, if I have my, you know, iPod on shuffle or something like that, and as a dying song comes on, I'm not like, Oh my God, I got to skip to the next song or I'm going to hell. Like, it's not one of those like super serious situations, but at the same time, it's like, we got to be honest about what Tim Lambesis did, because here's the thing. What if the guy that he was introduced to was not a cop? What if it was a mechanic, a hitman, right? His wife would probably be dead and now he would be this sympathetic figure in metal. Like, oh, his, you know, his wife died. That's so terrible, man. Like, gosh, you know, dadgummit. Well, you know, I'm glad he's still making music. I'm glad he's still in the band. I'm sure that's really therapeutic, right? That's what we'd be saying. You know, the odds are he wouldn't have been caught, right? And so that's the struggle I guess I have right now is, you know, when they release a new song, you know, I'm tempted to kind of listen to it and I might listen to it. But I think what I've kind of decided with this band is, as much as I feel bad for the other members of the band who had nothing to do with this and who are just trying to make a living, probably the most direct way that you can support a musician or an actor or a band or something like that is to buy tickets to their concert. And then when you go there, buy merch, 
those are the things that they get the most of the money from. They don't get a lot of money from the plays on, you know, Apple Music. They don't get a lot of money from Spotify or YouTube. They get most of their money from from touring. And As Lay Dying has been touring in Europe. I think they did some tours in, you know, South America, played some shows in Brazil. They haven't done a lot in America yet. But the thing about it is, is, is to be honest with you, I don't know that I could support the band by going and seeing them ever again. Uh, even though, again, they're, they are one of my favorite bands. I just, I just can't really see myself uh, giving them my money considering what the lead singer did. You know, and I know that's bad when you pay your debt to society, that should just be it. Um, you know, like I, I kind of remember when people would get on to Michael Vick, even after he, he got out of prison, the thing is, is Michael Vick went to big boy prison, right? Dude went to Leavenworth. He like, he didn't go to one of those prisons where, you know, you got like your own suite and your own security and you could leave on the weekends. Like he did real time and, and I'm a dog person and what he did to dogs and what he forced dogs to do was absolutely reprehensible, but he did pay his debt to society. And so when, you know, PETA and all those people were like picketing at his games, whenever he was playing with the Steelers or whatever afterwards, it's like, dude, that's no, like, I don't think that's right. But at the same time, I feel a little bit disingenuous because at the same time, I find it really, really hard to, to support anything that Tim Lambesis does, but that's just kind of where I'm am, where I am on the subject right now. So, all right, guys, next question here. Well, actually this is a, a, uh, email that I received from somebody, um, from the Portland area. Now, uh, I remember this email was written a little bit funky, so I'm going to try to read it as best I can, and then we'll get into the subject matter here, okay? All right, I live in the Portland metro area. I am part of the community of Hillsboro, even though I live in the next town over. In the last month, there was adopted a new sex education system in the Hillsboro School District that's going to be implemented. I've been, uh, I've not been through it all, but some of the things that I have read and talked about with others is that it appears that starting in kindergarten, they are going to start playing things like what gender are you today? And by fourth grade, teaching them how to give consent. So that's like sexual consent. I don't know about you, but at eight or nine years old, I didn't know right and wrong with my body. I've not found it myself, but there have been, there has been talk at around that grade level that they are going to be taught oral sex. And if that is on the table, they're probably going to talk about self-gratification or masturbation. I was wondering if you had heard of this happening elsewhere and what your thoughts were. So, uh, thanks uh, to this guy who wrote this email. I don't want to give his name uh, to anybody who's listening in that area. Um, but what's interesting about that, one of my foxhole guys, Rocky, the same week I got this email, he sent me a question that was like, Hey, have you heard about what's happening in the uh, Austin school system? And I was like, no. So I went and looked it up. Well, in the Austin independent school system, they had just, they just voted on this curriculum that you know, drastically expands the things that they're going to be doing from a sexual education standpoint. It brings in a lot of, you know, gender confusion stuff. It brings a lot into the trans stuff. You know, it's talking about consent. It's talking about, you know, different, you know, ways that you can do healthcare and all these different things. But essentially what they're doing is they're creating this hyper left, a very, very liberal way of doing sexual education, right? It's like, well, when we tell the kids not to have sex, they have sex anyway. So let's show a sixth grader how to put on a condom. That couldn't possibly go wrong. That's kind of the idea that they're going through. But then I read in a, in a small line down at the bottom of one of the articles I read who the curriculum was made by. Okay. So for the Austin independent school system that has just accepted this nonsense, the curriculum was made by, wait for it, planned freaking parenthood. Yeah. So you might think to yourself, what does Planned Parenthood have to do with sexual education? Why do they have a hand in sexual education for our children? Isn't Planned Parenthood busy murdering millions of babies every year? Like, Aren't they just busy, 
right? Don't they have other stuff that they can do? Because again, Planned Parenthood, they're not about women's health care. You can't go to Planned Parenthood and get a pap smear and a mammogram and all those things. You go there when you want someone else to kill your baby, right? Well, it's like what I talked about with Tim Lambesis. It's like, he was going to pay someone to kill his wife. And that's like the worst thing possible. But if a woman walks into a Planned Parenthood, hands him a few hundred bucks and says, murder my baby, we can't say that she's done anything wrong. Give me, give me a freaking break. Anyway, not talking about that today, but that's the thing is Planned Parenthood obviously is of the left and of, of the satanic left. And they're trying to put these ideas, a lot of these ideas about what is sexuality and what is consent and what is all these things. And none of these things are coming from a Judeo-Christian worldview whatsoever. It's coming from a Marxist leftist ideology because the thing about it is, is they want to take the kids and the control of the kids away from the parents. Okay. Now this isn't about to be a diatribe about public school because I was a product of public school. You know, there are private schools that have this private Christian schools that have this problem as well. But the thing about this Austin independent school system stuff, and I'm pretty sure I read this right. If, if I'm wrong, please correct me. But I don't think the parents are given an option to have their kids opted out of this. They're going to be forced to go through it or they need to take their kids out of the school, right? And so when you're forcing this on people, you're not giving the parents an opportunity to parent. <clears throat> and so that's why they had hundreds and hundreds of people show up at the, the, the board meetings, the school board meetings, trying to talk through this, but all the people on the school boards are leftists. And, and so it's all these people that are super concerned. It's like, well, y'all weren't concerned when it was time to elect these people. Cause here's the thing about Austin. Austin is a bright blue spot in an otherwise red state of Texas. Right. But if it could happen in Texas, it can happen in your backyard. Right. For the guy that this is going on in Portland, dude, it's Portland. No one's surprised that this is happening in Portland. So you shouldn't be surprised either. Anything that happens that's weird in the United States probably started. The idea came from Portland. It just is what it is. But when people talk about it happening in Texas, it's weird because if it happens there, it could happen in Oklahoma. It could happen in Wyoming, Montana, Alabama. It can certainly happen in those places. And so this should be a warning to all of you that you've got to be engaged. You've got to be engaged with your children's teachers. You got to be engaged with the principals. You got to be engaged with the school board. You got to maybe run for school board because the thing about it is most of the people that come from this, you know, uh, education background, most of them are of the left. And so they're going to see a program like this and be like, Oh my gosh, this is great. This is like, you know, super inclusive and you know, more people are going to be represented in this and it's going to be great. But, but think about the damage that's going to come from a program like this. You're asking a six-year-old whether they feel like a boy or a girl today. Well, they're like, well, I didn't know that was an option. And so you're, you're putting these, these ideas in their head that are poisonous, that are literally poisonous to them. So again, this about made my head explode reading about this to the guy who emailed me, dude, I'm so sorry that that's happening to you, but I'm glad you're on top of it. And as much as you know about the subject right now, let me encourage you to get even deeper into it. Okay. All right, guys, next part here. Well, this is pretty common on the Q and a episodes, but, uh, people want my, uh, UFC predictions for some upcoming things. And it looks like we, they want my opinion on some stuff that's already happened. So the very first thing here is they want my thoughts on the recent BMF title fight, uh, the kind of the lead up to the fight, the fight itself, the stoppage, the future of the BMF, you know, all that kind of stuff. So for any of you, you know, thinking individuals that don't know what the BMF is, let me break it down for you. The BMF stands for baddest mother effer, right? So that's all I'm going to give it to. So this came about because after Nate Diaz beat up Anthony Pettis, he gets on the mic and he's like, yeah, man, I'm going to defend my belt, my BMF belt against the baddest dude in the game. I'm going to fight Jorge Masvidal. It was the dumbest thing in the world. He made up a belt out of thin air. But then the promotion 
the UFC's like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's have you fight Jorge Masvidal as the main event in Madison Square Garden for the BMF belt, which doesn't really technically exist. The UFC came out and they made a belt for it, which is really weird. I mean, because like, like back in wrestling, like when the NWO took over the WCW, they like spray painted NWO on the belt and it was like, oh, this is counter. But like the, the, the UFC actually got behind it. They actually made an ugly belt that said BMF on it. Ridiculous. So the lead up to the fight, here's the thing. Nate Diaz is a moron and his interview, his interviews are just terrible if, if, and when he shows up and Jorge Masvidal is kind of like a counter puncher and he's kind of like a chill guy leading up to the fight. But the thing about the lead up is the title is called the baddest mother effort. You can't go on ESPN. You can't go on good morning America and say what the title actually is. So the general public didn't know what was going on. They just knew this was kind of a big fight and it was headlining Madison Square Garden. So it's probably a big deal. Okay. So we get all the way to the fight. This fight's at 170. This was not even a fight. Okay. It was, it was meant to go five rounds. It was stopped after the third round. Jorge Masvidal beat the brakes off of Nate Diaz. If there, there was a 15 minutes of that fight, Jorge Masvidal controlled 14 minutes and 58 seconds of that fight. He almost stopped Nate Diaz in the first round, hit him with a lot of clean punches and also followed it up with a kick. Uh, But after the third round, Nate Diaz had huge cuts on the top and bottom. I think it was of his left eye, right? Um, And the doctor came in and he stopped the fight, which is hilarious. And that's exactly what you dopes that like this BMF title nonsense. That's exactly what you deserve. The baddest mother ever had the fight stop because of a cut. Now, the cuts were terrible. I agree with the stoppage, but it just made perfect sense. Now, the stupidest thing is right after the fight, everyone was like, oh man, no, 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 no. They got to run this back. They got to run this back because Nate Diaz was just, he was waiting on Jorge to get tired. It's the fourth and fifth round. That's when Nate Diaz does his best work. What? Like, were we watching the same fight? Nate Diaz did nothing that was effective. And we have no indication that Jorge Masvidal was tired or even getting tired. Does that mean Nate couldn't have won the fight? Of course it doesn't mean that. He could have certainly won the fight. But there's no indication, like with that one-sided of a beatdown, you're not looking for an immediate rematch. And then like a week later, Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz's older, dumber, older brother, he's doing an interview. He's like, ah, oh, man, you're going to fight my brother. I'm going to come out of retirement. I'm going to fight you. And so this BMF thing apparently is going to live on a little bit, right? Because Nick Diaz is... Like, oh, I haven't fought in like 74 years, but I think I'll come back just to fight for this fictional BMF title. So hopefully it's done. Hopefully we never have to hear about this ridiculous BMF title. It's one of the stupidest things I've ever seen, but it is what it is. I would have watched the fight anyway, but to me, that's not a Madison Square Garden main event fight. That's like a fight night main event, right? Like it's just, it was weird to me that it was, it was made that big. We don't have any indication how well the fight sold, but yeah, there's my thoughts on the BMF title. All right. Now moving on. All right. Who would, okay. Who would the NMF be? So this guy's asking me who would be the nicest MFer in the UFC. Okay. Um, so he, he lists Max Holloway and Steven Thompson here. Okay. So I certainly would agree with those Max Holloway, the 145 pound champion, Steven Thompson, uh, twice, uh, went for the 170 pound, uh, belt, but, uh, those are very, very nice guys. If I'm uh, thinking off the top of my head, I would probably say, 
Um, I guess you'd have to put Randy Couture on there. So he, he's been retired for a while, but that was a nice guy. He always was smiling in the ring and seemed to be having a good time. Um, Dan Henderson's another one that this kind of like that, another retired guy. Uh, Chris Weidman hasn't quite retired yet. So he's, he's kind of, I mean, that dude's an absolute killer, but you know, another guy that's pretty nice and he's always doing interviews and stuff like that. Um, uh, Frankie Edgar, Frankie Edgar seems like a really nice dude. Like he's just seems kind of quiet and to himself and doesn't really kind of like make, he doesn't try to make too much out of things, but yeah, th- those would be the nicest MFers in the UFC. So thanks for that ridiculous question. All right. Next thing. Oh, so they want me to pick some upcoming fights. So there's not a whole lot of UFCs on the books because we're, we're coming up to the end of the year, but there's a huge fight card in Vegas on December 14th. That's UFC 245. There are three title fights on this pay-per-view. Okay. So the first title fight of that night is Amanda Nunes versus Jermaine Durandamy. Okay, so that's for the Bantamweight title uh, for the women's division, 135. The thing is, and it is until further notice, Amanda Nunes is the GOAT when it comes to female MMA. Okay? She knocked out Cyborg. She beat the brakes off of Ronda. She head kicked Holly Holm. She's literally, and she beat uh, Valentina Shevchenko twice already. She's beaten all the best female fighters that anyone can name right? And none of those fights were especially close, right? One of the fights against uh, Shevchenko was decently close, their last fight. Now, Jermaine Durandamy is a serious fighter. She is a serious striker. Um, But the thing about it is, is when people fight Amanda Nunes, they're like, she hits like a dude. And that's not meant to be, you know, a dig in any way, shape or form. Because women that spar with other guys in training said that when they get in the fight, Amanda Nunes is hitting them like the men do. So, I, I don't know. Like, I just don't see a way that Jermaine Durandamy wins this fight. I don't see any holes in Amanda Nunez's game as of late. She fixed her gas tank problem, which was her only problem that she ever had. And so she's a really, really scary person right now. So uh, the next fight on that, the next title fight that's on that pay-per-view is Max Holloway versus Alexander Volkanovsky. So that's for the featherweight title, 145. So Max Holloway is on a streak right now. I, I don't know how many title defenses he has in the row, but he has a lot. And he has done an incredible amount to build that up and to, to basically destroy everyone in front of him at 145. But I think he's going to lose the title on December 14th. I honestly do. So Alexander Volkanovsky, let me tell you a little bit about him. He's fighting at 145, but the dude used to play rugby. And when he played rugby, he weighed like over 200 pounds. Just think about that. He weighed over 200 pounds playing rugby. Now he fights at 145. But the thing about Volkanovsky is he's kept his speed, right? You know, obviously if you get smaller, you're going to get faster, but he's also kept his strength. And so Max Holloway, I can guarantee you, has never been in the octagon with a stronger human being than when he walks in there against Alexander Volkanovsky. I, I, and that's the thing is Max Holloway is, he's a pressure guy. He's a, he's a volume guy. He's not going to knock you out with one punch or one kick. But I think that everything he throws at Volkanovsky, he's just going to stand right, stand right in front of him and eat it. And so that, that's one of those fights that I'm really looking forward to. I really, really like Max Holloway, but I don't think he's going to keep his belt. And then the last one, uh, the main event of that is going to be Kamaru Usman fighting Colby Covington for the 170-pound uh, welterweight title. And so this is a huge fight. This is a grudge match in a lot of different ways. Colby Covington never really lost his his interim belt. They just kind of moved on because he because he had surgery. He he does the whole MAGA thing. You know, he's kind of a heel. He's making himself a heel. Kamar Usman, he does his best on the mic, but he's not the greatest. But the thing about this fight is Kamar Usman and Colby Covington are the same fighter. They, they're the same fighter. They both have great gas tanks. They overwhelm you with pressure and with volume they don't have a lot of power and they're great wrestlers. That's about it. But 
This is why I'm giving the edge in this fight to Colby Covington. Because Colby Covington has gotten under Kamara Usman's skin. Every time they do an interview, every time uh, they're in the same room, you can just see it. And, you know, Colby Covington's he's doing an act, this whole uh, Donald Trump thing, it's an act. But it's, it's bothering Usman. It is. It absolutely is bothering him. So, what I think that's going to translate to in the fight is I think Kam- Kamara Usman's going to try to go in there and literally kill Colby Covington. And he might do it. But I think he's going to come in guns blazing and try to get Colby out of there quick. And I think he might shoot his wad a little bit. Right? Because if you're fighting angry, you're going to fight tight. You're you're going to kind of overextend on some certain positions or certain punches. And the thing about Colby Covington is he's not going to get tired. Ever. Right? That doesn't mean he's unbeatable, but he's not going to get tired. And so, I think if Camaro does that and, you know, blows himself out by the second or third round, it's going to be a really, really long night for him. So, uh, this is a coin flip fight. I think Kamar Usman is considered a slight favorite right now, but I got to give it to Colby Covington. Uh, and then there's one more fight before the new year, before 2020, that is going to be interesting that I think a lot of people will be paying attention to. It's a fight nine fight on December 21st. It's Brian T. City Ortega versus a Korean zombie. And this is in Korea. And so here's the thing. The last time we saw a Korean zombie, he had gotten knocked out by one of the most incredible, you know, back elbows on the last second of a five round fight that we've ever seen. And then Brian T. C. D. Ortega, he fought a long time ago against Max Holloway and he got the, he just got just beat to crap by Max Holloway. It was a horrific fight for, uh, uh, Ortega, but in this fight, uh, I think Brian Ortega has been out for a very long time, but I don't think that's going to serve him well. Uh, Korean zombie fighting in Korea. Uh, this is a guy that's not going to really feel the pressure of that moment. So I don't think it's going to affect his performance. I honestly think it's going to be a bad night out for Brian Ortega. I think Korean zombie is going to put it on him. So uh, I, I got to take him in that fight. And then uh, I kind of added this last part myself. I wasn't asked about it, but there there's several fights that I'd like to see in 2020 that have not been announced and have not been signed yet. But if we get to the end of 2020 and these fights happen, I'm going to be really, really happy. And I'm just going to kind of give them to you in the order in which I you know came up with them. The first one is Stipe Miocic versus DC3. Okay, versus Daniel Cormier for the third one. This is a trilogy fight. First fight, Daniel Cormier won by knockout. Stipe won the second fight by knockout. They got to do it again. DC's already said that this is going to be his last fight. No more fighting, no more waiting for John Jones, that kind of thing. Because the thing is, is DC was winning that fight the whole way, and then he got sloppy. Then he got lazy. So I think he knows that he left some things out there. I think he knows that he's better than Stipe, but that's a fight that we got to see. We got to see the third one. Stipe is out there talking about, you know, doing a boxing match with Tyson Fury and all this nonsense. It's it's complete crap, but he's keeping his name out there. It is what it is, but I got to see that fight next year. The next one I want to see at 185. So Israel Adesanya. So he is the undisputed champion there. He just defended his belt technically against Robert Whitaker. I want to see him versus Yoel Romero. Okay. So Yoel Romero is coming off of a loss to Paulo Costa in a fight where I think everyone and their dog thought that Yoel Romero won that fight. But Paulo Costa has blown his bicep, and so he had to have surgery on his bicep. And there's not anyone else at 185 that makes sense immediately. Kelvin Gastelum just lost his last fight to Darren Till. Darren Till, that was only his first fight at 185. I don't think he's ready for Israel Adesanya whatsoever, and his fight against Gastelum wasn't that great anyway. But Yoel Romero is the fight that Israel Adesanya wants. And Yoel Romero is a killer. He's he's a freak. He's a 43-year-old freak beast. But the thing is, is, I think if you sign that fight, no one's disappointed, even if Yoel Romero's coming off a loss. And I know he has trouble making weight. I know he has trouble showing up sometimes. It just kind of is what it is. But that would be a huge fight at 185. And so the next one I want to see, it's kind of like four guys. It's kind of like a round robin that I want to happen at 155. So I want some form or fashion of Habib Nurmagomedov, Tony Ferguson, Conor McGregor, Justin Gaethje. 
I need all those guys to fight like, like a whole bunch. I need them to just fight every other month or something like that. Um, the thing is though, is the fight that I have to absolutely see out of that group is you have to see Habib Nurmagomedov versus Tony Ferguson. Okay. That fight has been made four times and four times an injury has occurred and that fight couldn't happen. That that's, that's obviously the fight to happen at 155. But the problem is, is Sabib hasn't fought since September and we have no announcement or indication that those two are going to fight each other. There's something weird going on, right? And I don't think it really has anything to do with Connor because, you know, Connor talking about him coming back to fight Cowboy Cerrone in July or in January, but that's not been signed yet either. It's just kind of a weird time. But those four guys, I mean, I really think that Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje are the two guys that have the best chance of ending Habib Nurmagomedov's um, undefeated career. Uh, Conor McGregor, I think, took Habib way, he didn't take him seriously really at all. Uh, he thought he was going to go in there and just be able to box the guy and really defend the takedown. It just obviously didn't work out for him. He only won one round and ended up getting choked out. But um, those four guys, if they can just continue fighting one another, I think that'd be awesome. Uh, the next one I'd like to see, I want to see John Jones fight at heavyweight. Okay, so John Jones has been flirting with the idea of going to heavyweight for, you know, what seems to be years and years, decades at this point. But the thing is, is he keeps talking about how there's not really any interesting fights at 205. And, you know, you got Reyes and, and Corey Anderson won his last fight. And so there's a couple of interesting fights there. But I feel like he's a couple of fights from really kind of wearing out that division. And so he rocks around at about 225 anyway. If he wanted to concentrate on going up to heavyweight and fighting whoever's up there, fighting Stipe or Francis or, or you know whoever that might be, Francis Ngannou, um, I just want to see him go ahead and do that. Like I'm tired of him talking about it. I just want to see it actually happen. And then the last fight I want to see is, uh, this is me assuming that Colby Covington is going to beat Kamaru Usman. I want to see Colby Covington go against Tyron Woodley. That fight is the fight that should have happened a long time ago because those, those two guys hate each other former training partners. Um, you know, they've got a lot of trash that they're talking back and forth. That fight was supposed to happen. I think the middle of last year, but they needed Tyron. They needed to do a main event for like a Dallas card and Tyron was ready, but Colby had just had like nasal surgery. So they couldn't match it up. And then it just didn't quite work out. Tyron Woodley fought Kamar Usman lost. And then there wasn't really any heat at the time between Covington and Usman. It's just kind of one of those things, but that's the fight. I mean, I'm interested in watching Covington fight Usman right now. But him versus Tyron Woodley, that's the real fight. Because Tyron Woodley had a horrible night out when he lost his belt to Kamar Usman. He did not look good walking to the octagon. When he took his shirt off, he looked he literally didn't look like he normally did. He didn't fight like he normally did. Something was wrong. I mean, he was doing a bunch of stuff on TMZ. He was talking to uh, you know, a bunch of different people doing, you know, rap records and all that stuff. I think his mind wasn't in the game. But if he's in the game, him versus Colby is the number one fight that I would want to see at 170. So hopefully we get that next year. All right, guys, last question. That Well, actually, actually, this isn't a question. This is a request. It just says this. Tell me a story. Okay, okay, so here we go, guys. I'm going to tell you a story, okay? And now the thing about this story is, is that the story is actually true. So, follow along. You will never get my secret, the man exclaimed as he was being forcefully removed from his home by four burly police officers. This small, quiet Texas town was suddenly awakened early this Tuesday morning by the sound of the front door of their neighbor's home being breached by law enforcement. No matter what you do, I'll never tell you. You will never get my secret, were the last words anyone heard before the door of the police cruiser was shut. The man knew this day would eventually come. He just wasn't sure when. He knew that his secret couldn't be kept forever. 
but he wasn't quite sure yet if the proverbial cat was actually out of the bag. The man was taken to the police station where he was questioned for the crime in question. The crime, you ask? Well, the officers didn't know either. You see, the man they had arrested, now sitting solemnly but calmly inside their questioning room, had been the focus of the department in this small, quiet town for quite some time. There's just something about him, some would say. He just seems a bit off, doesn't he? Others would ask. Why won't he just tell us his secret? Was the most common of the questions asked about this man in the town where he lived. You see, this seemingly off individual would frequently be overheard talking to himself when he was in public. For years, his seemingly incoherent ramblings were quiet and rare. However, over the last several months, his demeanor had soured, his tone more biting, his volume elevated. The subject of his ramblings and exclamations over this time? His secret. Always his secret. The townspeople were left to always wonder what secret could possibly have this man in such a constant tizzy, a secret that this man was clearly having a hard time keeping to himself. The exclamations only became more frequent and louder as time passed. The complaints to the city and to the police about this seemingly unstable man went relatively unchecked. He hasn't done anything wrong, the police would say. Being weird and making you uncomfortable isn't a crime. However, that all changed. It was earlier on that quiet Tuesday morning that the police thought they finally found this man's secret. A long-awaited answer to the secret that had been haunting him. Earlier that morning, a local hunter called the police to report a ghastly discovery. When the police arrived, the hunter immediately admitted to hunting illegally on private land that he did not own, but the police were none too concerned about that fact after they saw what the hunter discovered. There, under a thin layer of dirt, mud, and leaves, were the highly decomposed bodies of two men. It was unclear just how long the dead men had been there, but it was certainly quite some time. The police found the wallets of the two men and pulled them from their tattered clothing. They removed their identification cards, and they shared a last name. These men were brothers. The police then called the station and immediately had them find out the owner of the land where the grizzly discovery was made. Interestingly, the landowner also shared the last name of the two slain men. A name shared because he too was their brother. After processing this bit of news, a sense of horror came over the officer when he realized the land belonged to the rambling man. The man with two dead brothers. The man with a crippling secret. A secret of murder? Once in the investigation room, the detectives did everything they could to get the man to admit he had killed his brothers and buried them hurriedly on his land. The interrogation went on for countless hours, but the man would not budge. He simply would not admit to this crime. A crime that the officers were convinced was committed by him. A crime that the officers were convinced was this man's secret. With no direct evidence of the crime substantiating the officers' gut feelings, they were reluctantly forced to allow the man to return to his home. The next day, a second-year officer was cleaning the interrogation rooms when he found a hat. He recognized this hat. It was on the head of the man he had helped drag out of the house the previous morning. He simply must have forgot to grab it on his way out. 
Feeling a sense of duty to return the hat and curiosity to keep an eye on a suspected double murderer in his community, the young officer decided to drive by the man's house and return his hat to him. When the officer arrived at the home, he noticed two long skid marks at the edge of the street. He parked his cruiser in the empty driveway and got out to have a look around. He looked in the garage window. The garage was empty. He looked into the house through the side window. Nothing to be seen. He went around the front, peeked in that window. It seems as if the man had cleared out his possessions and left in haste. The officer immediately grabbed for his radio to report that the suspected murderer had skipped town when something caught his eye. There was a note on the front door. The note said, You will never find me, but I can no longer live being the only person to know my secret. I trust that my secret will be safe with you. That was all it said. No poetic language, no solemn goodbye, certainly not a single divulged secret, just two sentences. Silence, despair, confusion, those being the main feelings the officer felt at that moment, until the hair on the back of his neck stood up. The officer realized that words weren't all that were on that note. As his eyes trailed off toward the bottom of the paper after he read the final word, he noticed that the paper had been folded, taped, and something left inside. The officer pulled off the tape and down fell an important piece to the impending puzzle. The officer knelt down to pick up a key. A key to what? The officer thought. Then realizing where he was standing, the officer tries the key on the front door. It doesn't work. He thinks quickly and remembers that there is a side door and a back door to the house as well. He goes to the side door and tries the lock. No luck. He runs to the back door, heart pounding, palms sweating, puts the key in and... Nothing. The key didn't work. Exasperated, dejected, exhausted, the officer leans up against the brick wall of the back of the house and slides down until he's sitting on the ground. What now? He asks himself. Is he just messing with me at this point? Is there even a secret to be found? It was at that moment the sun peeked out from behind the clouds and a glare caught his eye. Temporarily blinded, the officer wondered where the glare was coming from and then he saw it. In the middle of the yard, about 50 feet away from the back door where he sat, he saw a small storm shelter. Attached to the latch on the outside, a shiny lock the same lock that had caught the light of the sun. Newly invigorated, the officer sprints to the storm shelter, collects himself, slowly places the key inside the lock, turns it, and... click. It unlocks. He takes the lock off, unlatches the latch, and throws the storm shelter door open. He peers inside but cannot see a thing. Too dark. He pulls out his flashlight and begins his descent. Once in the shelter, he looks around to find nothing out of the ordinary. There's bottled water by one wall, some canned food on a bookshelf by the other, and some lawn tools strewn about with no particular order. Nothing out of the ordinary. Except, he notices that the bookshelf with the canned food is not flush with the wall behind it. He pulls back the bookshelf and to his amazement, he sees a door with a latch and a shiny lock, just like the one he had just opened. 
He places a key inside the lock, turns it, and... Click. It unlocks. He throws open the door to find himself at the beginning of a long underground tunnel. He points his flashlight into the opening, but cannot see where the tunnel ends. Courageously, he begins walking down the tunnel, slowly. He's five steps down the tunnel, sees nothing. Now, 20 steps down the tunnel, sees nothing. 100 steps down the tunnel, still nothing. With his fear reaching maximum capacity and the notion that he might be walking into a trap, the officer considers turning around and leaving this entire mess behind. But then, he sees a light. A literal light at the end of the tunnel. His gait quickens. As he gets closer to the light, the light becomes bigger and brighter. He's running now, running as fast as he can to get to this light. And then, he arrives at the light. It is a single light hovering over a single table with a single thing on top of it. A sealed envelope. The officer picks up the envelope and can barely contain his excitement and elation when he reads, written on the outside of the envelope, the words, My Secret. His lungs burning, his heart pounding, his brow wet with sweat, he quickly rips open the envelope and written on a single sheet of paper is the secret he'd gone through all of this to learn. Epstein didn't kill himself.